Well, as you're taking a seat, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to 1 Peter chapter 5. The passage our friend Evelyn read for us a moment ago, we've been journeying through this letter, and we actually looked at a big portion of this passage last week, but I felt like it'd be good for us to revisit just a, a small portion sitting at the heart of this chapter in 1 Peter today. So we want to revisit uh, one of the themes that's found there in verses 8 and 9, and as you're finding your way there, I'm going to voice one more prayer over us, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles, will you open up our hearts to receive your word? I pray that your word would nourish our souls and build up our faith. I pray that if faith is absent in anyone's life right now, that your word would create it, that your word would create faith within the one who may not yet know the Savior. And I pray that as we move into this passage, talking about some things that might be intimidating or frightening to some, I pray that your grace would abound and that your perfect love would cast out all of our fears. Give us grace to fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus, even as we look at a passage dealing with the devil. So God, I ask and pray for your blessing upon us as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the mid-19th century, everyone thought diseases just spontaneously generated in the body because there was something wrong with the body. Uh, something like having too much blood might cause some diseases, or if your body was too hot or too cold, uh, that would cause some diseases. George Washington, George Washington, it turns out, died uh, when a doctor was relieving blood from his body, thinking that was the way to cure what many suspect was just a common, a common cold. And doctors back in the day weren't worried about sanitation. So you might go to a hospital and have a doctor that may have been handling a corpse in one room only to move into the next to deliver a baby. And so you can imagine uh, why some of the mortality rates in hospitals were, were high back in the 19th century. But then in 1864, a physician by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis, uh, you can check me on my German-Dutch accent later, but Ignaz Semmelweis, he, he began to suspect that people carried diseases in the form of small particles that were invisible to the naked eye. And so he called them microbes, which literally means uh, little pieces of flesh. Uh, we know them now as germs. But that's not how many people viewed the world in the 19th century. And so he decided to conduct an experiment. And so he began to have his interns in the hospital wash, his hands, wash their hands regularly. So they began to wash their hands before delivering babies, or if they moved from one room dealing with one patient to the next, they would wash their hands. And, and this experiment proved successful as the mortality rate began to drop dramatically, but there were many doctors even then who weren't supportive of his thesis. They weren't supportive because in their mind, the idea that so much destruction was caused by something they could not see was just too hard to believe. And so Semmelweis was speaking at a conference, and he looked at his, his fellow doctors in the room, and, and he made this statement, for God's sake, just please wash your hands. And not many people listened in that moment. Even his own wife thought he was kind of crazy. And in fact, he did have some mental struggles. He ended up dying in an asylum years later. But, but there are many people, perhaps some in this room right now, some who are tuning in online who who might think that the subject we're taking up today is just a bunch of crazy talk. The idea that so much destruction 
so much difficulty, so much death may be caused by something that we just can't see seems too hard to believe. Yet if you've spent much time reading through the New Testament, you've discovered time and time again the the Scriptures telling us, for God's sake, just wash your hands, warning us of a world that we cannot observe with the naked eye, warning us of elements in the world that though we may not touch and we might not ever see, there are elements at work in the world that are causing a lot of struggle and difficulty and destruction and death. Here are some examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Let us not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not to be ignorant of his schemes. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then, of course, you have today's passage. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. You see, the scriptures tune us into a world that we might not ever see with the naked eye, a world that we might not be able to observe directly, this this world where there is a conflict. It's what the New Testament refers to as spiritual warfare. And passages such as these are reminding you and I to pay attention and to not to be ignorant of them. For God's sakes, let's wash our hands. Let's listen to what the scriptures have to say about these realities so that we might not be caught off guard, so that we might respond in ways that would cause the Savior to be glorified as the hero of our story, the hero of our lives the hero of his people, even as his people are opposed by invisible, hostile, spiritual forces. As a Christian who has been called into the kingdom of God, you have not been called to be a pacifist. When it comes to spiritual warfare in these elements, there is no pacifism that we can exercise. We've been enlisted to engage this conflict that doesn't occur, that doesn't take place between flesh and blood, but a conflict that is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. You know, a Christian or many people live according to a particular worldview, but a person's worldview is determined more by their way of life than by their stated beliefs. And if we were to take a poll in this room today, if we were to take a poll of those who are tuning in this morning and we were to ask how many of you actually believe there's something called spiritual warfare and and evil spiritual forces that are opposed to God and opposed to his people, how many of you would actually believe that? There, There may be quite a few that say, yes, we believe that, but I wonder if our way of life agrees with that stated belief. And I suspect that the challenge for Christians is that we tend to treat life in this world as though it is a playground rather than a battleground. That we spend far too much time acting like kids make skipping rope at recess rather than soldiers who've been enlisted into a real conflict with legitimate consequences that we want to overcome by faith in Jesus. 
And so this morning, I just want to remind us of this reality. I want to remind us, according to the passage in 1 Peter, that we have an enemy that we just can't ignore, an enemy that we cannot pretend doesn't exist, an enemy that we cannot be oblivious to. This is what Peter is saying in verse 5, be sober-minded, be alert. He's saying, live with your head on a swivel. Be a soldier who is alert to the looming threats that may surround you. When it comes to this moment of being told to be sober-minded, understand that the opposite of sober-mindedness is drunken-mindedness. And if you've ever hung around with someone who's consumed too much alcohol, you know that they're very easy to manipulate. That a drunk person is very easy to lie to. A drunk person is very easy to push around. A drunk person becomes very oblivious to the threats and the hostilities that may be surrounding them. I witnessed a drunkard stumble out into the middle of a busy street and utterly unconcerned with the cars that were coming towards him. And had there been a devious or a dangerous driver heading his way, they would not have braked. See, the opposite of being sober-minded is to be drunken-minded. And as Christians, when it comes to dealing with these types of topics, we can't be oblivious. We can't rest in our ignorance. We're to be sober-minded, to be alert. We're not to be like drunkards, stumbling and bumbling our way through this world, oblivious to the surrounding dangers. We are to be like soldiers. Sober-minded, alert, aware, and attentive with our head on a swivel. This passage reminds us that we have an enemy. And this passage reminds us that our enemy is dangerous, that he is dangerous. Notice he's referred to in verse 5 as the devil. And this enemy that we're talking about carries many names in the scriptures. He's referred to by many. He has many aliases, so to speak. You've heard him called the devil. You've heard him called Satan. You've heard him called Lucifer. Beelzebub, Belial, the evil one, the tempter, the prince and ruler of this world. He's referred to as the accuser. Many metaphors are used to depict the devil, to showcase what he is like. Many forms he takes in the scriptures that, that affect how we should view him and consider him. He pops up first in the beginning of the Bible as a serpent. He's also, he's also referred to in the book of Revelation as a dragon. In this passage, he's referred to as a lion, this ferocious lion, this metaphor that's intended to remind the Christian that our enemy is dangerous. Now, originally, if you know the story of the devil, if you spent much time looking into some of these themes in the Bible, you know that the devil was an angel originally. He was created by God, and he was a part of the kingdom of heaven, serving as a cherub. And in the order of God's kingdom, a cherub was a high-ranking angel that had a lot of responsibility in all that went down there. And, but as a creature, as an angel, he was subservient to the maker. He was subservient to the creator. But there came a moment when he wasn't content with his position under God. And so in pride, he tried to come out from under God and either put himself on the same plane as God or even in some cases trying to usurp God and to be over God. I'll give you an example in Isaiah chapter 12, Isaiah chapter 14. This kind of cues us into some of this crazy history that the Bible gives us. Listen to the passage. Referring to him as shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. 
I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so this vain ambition inspired his rebellion, and eventually he was cast out of heaven. And and when God created the world in the book of Genesis, he's found slithering around the Garden of Eden, taking the form of a servant, a serpent. And now he's just wreaking havoc. He's undermining God's purposes. He's seeking to destroy God's people. This is what the imagery of 1 Peter 5 is designed to remind us of that we have a real enemy who is dangerous. And he's depicted here as a, as a lion who's prowling around seeking someone to devour. I suspect that as Peter's writing these words, images of human beings being led into the gladiatorial arena of Rome only to have lions unleashed on them, to, to circle them, getting stalking them, getting ready to pounce upon them. I, I suspect the imagery of human beings being torn apart by dangerous lions, perhaps motivated Peter to drop that image here as he's talking about our dangerous enemy. But it's very important as you and I begin to think about the devil this morning, and we have this this talk, is that although we are recognizing, we're affirming that the devil is dangerous, we also want to remember and always keep in mind that the danger is, the devil is limited, that he is dangerous, but he is not all-powerful. And I think one of the mistakes we make when we talk about the devil or we begin having conversations that seem strange regarding spiritual warfare is we begin to make the enemy to be much bigger than he actually is. Now, he's certainly dangerous, but he's also very limited. Again, he started off as an angel who was created by God. And as a creature, he is limited in his energy. He's limited in his power. He's limited in where he can be in a given moment. He's limited in his knowledge that the devil is not like God in the sense that God is everywhere present. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. The devil isn't that. He's dangerous, but he's definitely, definitely limited. You have a book in the Old Testament referred to as the book of Job. It tells the story of a man who suffered egregiously in his life and how God worked in the midst of his suffering to bring him to a a different state of relationship with him and a different state in his relationship with all of God's creation. But he endured a lot of suffering. And we're told at the beginning of Job that that suffering was inspired by the devil. It was inspired by one who opposed him. And what's interesting is that the book begins with the devil coming to God and having a conversation with God and in essence seeking God's permission to go after Job. Now, there's a lot of mystery to be found in that dynamic, and we'll revisit it later next year when we talk about at the turn of the year when we host our next Gospel Clarity Study Series, and we're going to look at the gospel and suffering, and we're going to dive into that and looking at it in more depth and detail. But suffice it to say right now that the devil could not touch Job apart from God's permission. God is sovereign over Satan. He is sovereign over the devil. He holds the devil on a leash, so to speak. And so we want to recognize, yes, he is dangerous, but he is also limited. And our God is more, our God checks him. Our God limits him. Our God is infinitely more powerful than him. But nevertheless, he is is dangerous. He is more dangerous than any other created being in the entire cosmos. And when you think about the devil being portrayed here as a lion, 
Understand that he's part of the reason why he is dangerous is because he is organized. And just as a lion travels in a pack, the devil too travels in a pack. The devil too has some accomplices in his efforts to oppose God and to oppose God's people. And the devil, devil of course, is the leader of that pack. And so you read through the gospels and you see a lot of stories where Jesus is casting out demons from people. And you wonder what's going on there. Well, what's going on there is you have the devil's pack wreaking havoc in people's lives. And you have Jesus stepping onto the scene of our lives and, and going to work, showing him to be far stronger than any demonic influence or any demonic presence that may tyrannize a person's life. And so you have Jesus liberating people, setting people free over and over and over again. But you do have these demons. And since the devil can't be everywhere, he uses demons to carry out his opposition against God and his opposition against God's people. So if we want to talk about the devil being an, uh, originally being an angel created by God to serve God's purposes, only to rebel and to fall from God, well, when that happened, he took a bunch of other angels with him. And those angels followed him down, and they are now referred to in the New Testament as demons. And so part of the reason why the enemy is dangerous is because he is organized. He leads a pack. And he and his minions are scheming against God's purposes. They're scheming against God's people. He is organized. He is observant. You look at this dynamic where the devil is prowling around. He's the image of, of him hunting, prowling around, observing his prey, looking for the right time to pounce. Perhaps in 1961, you're familiar with a song that came out by the tokens, uh, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Uh, I've been tempted to kind of sing it, to jog your memory, and I'll just refer you to the Lion King to, to kind of keep you, because, you know, Timon and Pumbaa, they made it globally popular. But in the song, there's a refrain, the lion sleeps tonight. That's the whole idea. But what we're reminded of in this moment is that the lion isn't sleeping. The lion is stalking. He is prowling around. He is observing the human condition. And when we talk about being opposed by the enemy, understand we're being opposed by someone who doesn't necessarily read our minds as much as someone who has observed human nature for so long, he knows how to prod us. He knows how to come after us. He knows how to counterfeit God's activity to deceive us into thinking things that we shouldn't think or believing things that we shouldn't believe. The devil is a keen observer of the human condition. He has been observing humanity since the very beginning. And if you're going to watch human nature for so long, you're going to pick up on some things. And so part of his danger is the fact that he knows how to scheme against us because he knows how we are wired. He knows what appeals to us and our desires. He knows our habits of thought that he loves to encourage, these thoughts that take us away from believing the gospel or trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus or whatever the case may be. He is a keen observer, prowling around, looking for the right time, which brings us to the other dynamic. The devil is organized. He is observant. He is opportunistic. He's prowling around, looking for anyone he can devour anyone that he and his minions can influence away from the beauty of Jesus, anyone he might inspire away from God's ways and away from God's 
affections and away from God's presence and away from God's provision and away from God's power. He's opportunistic, looking for the moment to strike. This is what we're told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. That, that's Paul writing to a bunch of Christians saying, you can be angry because that's an emotion, but don't let your anger lead you to sinning. And then he goes on to make this statement. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't harbor anger because the enemy will prey on that. Don't harbor anger so that it grows exponentially and it becomes unrighteously wielded or unrighteously held. And then in so doing, you are giving the enemy an opportunity to pounce. You're giving him something to eat whenever he stalks your life. And so the devil is dangerous because he's organized, he's observant, he's opportunistic, and more could be said about that. But let's look also that our enemy is determined. This lion is determined to do many things to hinder God's activity in our lives and to keep us from being who God has created and redeemed us to be. He, he's determined to deceive us. Often and throughout Scripture, this is what he is doing. He's, he's dropping half-truths on people. He's looking to deceive people so they're not thinking rightly about who God is and about who Jesus is and about who we are and about what Jesus wants to do in our lives. He's constantly deceiving. This is what he's doing in the very beginning. This is what he did in the Garden of Eden when he approached Eden, uh, Eve and he engaged her in a conversation that dropped half-truths, which were whole lies. And he was determined to deceive and in his determination, he succeeded you know, I was told about a lizard in the desert that whenever it is faced with something, another creature that it opposes, this lizard will do a couple of things. It'll approach its opposition and in an effort to intimidate the other creature, it will puff itself up really big, causing itself to appear dominant, causing itself to appear physically superior to the other. But if that doesn't work, that lizard will change tactics. And so rather than puffing itself up to appear bigger than the, its opponent, it will it'll shrink back and it'll roll over on its back and pretend as though it is dead. And so this lizard is able to survive in the desert because its power, its strength is found in deception. By deceiving opponents through puffing itself up and deceiving opponents by pretending to be dead. Now you wonder, what does the devil do? Well, the devil does both. His strength and his power in our lives rests in the lie. And there are times when the devil convinces people to think that he is bigger than he actually is. But then there is an equal and opposite dynamic to that where the devil will convince people that he doesn't exist, that he isn't stalking, that he isn't prowling, that he isn't a part of what's going down. He's rolling over on his back, pretending to be dead when we know he's just deceiving the devil is dangerous. The devil is determined, and he is determined to deceive. Not only that, he's a determined to accuse. Another dynamic that we see him doing in Scripture and that you've experienced in your own life, whether you realize it or not, is the enemy has accused you of things. I was in a conversation with a disciple not too, not too long ago, and the question came up, what's the difference between demonic accusation and spirit-driven conviction? Because those two things can feel very similar when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and when we, have, we are being accused by the enemy, that, that experience can feel very similar. And I begin to think upon that question. 
And this was my counsel to that disciple. I said, you know, the way you can tell the difference between demonic accusation and spirit conviction is by always remembering that the Holy Spirit doesn't define you by your sin. The Holy Spirit doesn't define you by what you've been, what has gone wrong in your life. Meaning when a demon comes up to you to accuse you, he's going to speak with definite nouns. He's going to label you murderer, liar, pervert. He's going to define you as being worthless and unlovable. Those accusations that are life-determining, that may define a person's self-understanding, that's those accusations are being hurled at God's people constantly, but when the Holy Spirit begins to move and the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of sin, understand that he's not speaking in that type of way. He's not going to call you a murderer. He's not going to call you a pervert. He's not going to label you as someone who is worthless and undesirable. No, the Holy Spirit is going to be honest with you about what's gone wrong. You've lusted. You've been proud. Your anger was unrighteous. But the Holy Spirit is going to relate to you in a way that reminds you that you are now in Christ. And when God looks at you in Christ, he doesn't see you as a murderer. He doesn't see you as a thief. He doesn't see you as a pervert. He doesn't see you as someone who is unlovable or undesirable. He sees you as his child. And so the Holy Spirit may convict you of what you've done wrong without labeling or defining you by what you've done wrong. And so if you want to discern the difference between demonic accusation and Holy Spirit conviction, think about the, think about the nature of the words that are coming into your mind, the nature of the words that you are hearing. Are they definitive or are they just descriptive? Conviction is descriptive. This is what's gone wrong in my life. Accusation is definitive. This is who you are. But the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are loved in Christ, that we are the sons and daughters of God. And so though the enemy is dangerous in hurling accusations, we learn to discern the difference between accusation and conviction as we lean into these gospel realities. But then we also want to say that the, not only is he determined to deceive and to accuse, the enemy is determined to tempt. This is what he's doing again, over and over and over again, tempting people to move in a way that isn't God's way or to do something that isn't according to the will and wonder of God. And, and so the tempter begins to hold out a fishing lure, showing us something that is attractive while hiding the hook so that when we bite it, when we take it, we end up destroying ourselves. That's what temptation does. When the enemy's tempting, he's going to conceal the hook. He's going to convince you to believe that what you are doing is okay for you, that what you are doing will work out for you in the end, but all the while the hook is hidden. And before long, that hook is going to be set. And the more we succumb to temptation, the more that hook embeds itself into our way of thinking or into our way of feeling. And then we find ourselves being pulled relentlessly by the enemy in the directions that he would have us go. So we want to be aware of this so that when temptation comes, we don't assume that or we remember that temptation comes from a determined enemy. But then here's a dynamic that's often overlooked when these conversations come up, is that our enemy is determined to divide. I don't know if you've ever put division in the same category as demonic activity, but know that the, the devil is determined to divide. 
He's been doing this from the very beginning when he sought to divide us from God, which is why he deceived Eve and tempted her away from God. This is what he started to do at the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry, trying to divide the Son of God from his heavenly Father by, one, convincing him that he wasn't the Son of God and trying to tempt him into doing things that wouldn't honor his heavenly Father. And so he sought to divide God the Son from God the Father. He's now seeking to divide the church, and this would pop up in multiple passages in the, Old, in the New Testament where demonic activity and a divided church are talked about in the same breath. And I believe this is one thing that you and I must resist right now as a faith family because the devil is determined to divide and he wants to divide you and me. He wants to divide you from one another. And one of the ways that he's doing this is he's taking advantage of the opportunity of a pandemic. He's taking advantage of the opportunity presented by a hostile political climate and so many varied opinions and so many varied thoughts about how things should be handled. And what's he doing? Well, he's pouncing on that, taking advantage of that opportunity to divide the church from her being who God has called her to be. If you are someone who's offended by another Christian who is practicing social distancing, let me implore you not to take that personally. If your brother or your sister in Christ is in a position where they feel like social distancing is is a good move, a wise move. Don't, don't, be, don't take it personally. Don't be offended by their efforts to practice something that falls into the arena of common grace that is perfectly reasonable according to certain interpretations of the evidence and all that is happening. So please just stop taking everything personally when you view how other Christians are handling the pandemic. They're not doing anything to intentionally offend you or to intentionally frustrate you. They're, do, they're trying to make their best decisions, the wisest decisions based on the evidence that is, they're seeing and, and all that is happening in our climate. So let's resist the devil's determination to divide us. Let's assume the best in one another. Let's trust Christ in each other. Let's love one another with an enduring, persevering kind of love. So we have a determined enemy who seeks to deceive, to accuse, to tempt, to, to divide. Ultimately, we have an enemy who's determined to destroy. This is what Jesus would say in John chapter 10, verse 10, referring to the devil as a thief, saying the thief comes only to, to steal and to kill and to destroy, that he wants to destroy all of God's activity. This is what he is determined to do. But you remember that verse in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but what does Jesus come to do? Jesus has come to turn that on his head. Jesus has come to give life and to give it abundantly. And so the enemy may be determined to afflict us. The enemy may be dangerous in his opposition against us, but we have a Jesus and we have a gospel that assures us that our enemy is doomed. He is doomed. He is doomed because in the past he's already been defeated. We know this as believers in Jesus. We trusting in the fact that Christ was crucified, but after being crucified, Christ did not stay dead. He resurrected. And when he stepped out of the tomb, he was declaring our enemy to be defeated. Now, a defeated enemy can still be a dangerous enemy. In some ways, a person who knows they're defeated, they might just get very reckless and trying to wreak more havoc, but they're defeated nonetheless. Perhaps you saw Mel Gibson's rendition of The Passion of the Christ and you saw the moment where 
the Savior stepped on the head of the serpent at the beginning of the movie and crushed the serpent's head. That was artistically conveying the very first gospel we hear in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, 15, where we are told that the serpent will, or that Jesus, the Savior, will strike his head even though he may strike his heel. And Christians have believed for centuries that that dynamic was a reference to what what would go down on the cross when the enemy would, would wound the Savior, would strike his heel, but in striking his heel, he would find his head crushed. Christ was crucified. He was risen. Our enemy is doomed because he's already been defeated in the past. And because he's been defeated in the past, we can resist him in the present. Because he's already been defeated, we can resist him. This is why this language is used in verse 9. He says, resist him. Resist the devil firm in your faith. Resist the devil now. Don't let him deceive you, accuse you, tempt you, divide you. Resist him so that he won't destroy you. Now, when it comes to resisting the devil in the present, understand that resisting the enemy has less to do with technique and more to do with transformation. Now, there are certain techniques that people like to champion when it comes to engaging in spiritual warfare and overcoming the determination of the enemy. And some of those techniques may be helpful, but recognize the context of this passage. This passage dealing with the devil is nestled in the middle of a passage telling Christians to put to clothe themselves in humility. And so there seems to be a connection between humility and resisting the enemy. And so we can resist the devil not so much by learning every technique that people has that people may offer about how to deal with the devil or how to deal with spiritual warfare and you find the right technique and you play the right game then you can overcome certain things. No, it seems the ordinary way. The ordinary way we resist the enemy is by pursuing transformation. It's by becoming more like Jesus, clothing ourselves with humility that says, you know, God is God and I am not. A humility that says Jesus is stronger than Satan. A humility that says, yeah, um, I have sinned against Jesus. I'm going to confess that because I'm being humble. I'm going to exercise repentance because that's what humility does. I'm going to believe the gospel because that's what humility is or what it entails. And so if we're going to resist the devil in the present, we understand that it's not so much about technique as it is transformation. It comes when we are exercising faith, believing the gospel. Now, one of my favorite illustrations of this comes from uh, (laughs) Harry Potter. Uh, perhaps the first book of the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. If you've read the book or seen the movie, good. If you haven't, and I'm about to spoil it for you, I'm sorry, but it's been a long time. Uh, you've had plenty of time to read that book or to see that movie. And, but it comes to the climax where Harry is, is going up against a professor named Quirrell. I think that's how you say it. And Quirrell is a minion for he who should not be named. And so he's influencing Quirrell and he's energizing Quirrell to go after Harry Potter to take him out, to put him to death. And and in this conflict, Harry doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to resist him in the moment. So he just puts up his hands and he actually touches uh, Quirrell. And when he touches the professor, he begins to burn. Heat begins to happen and he finds himself pained by Harry's touch. One thing led to another eventually. Quirrell was defeated. He was disintegrated because Harry grabbed hold of him and didn't let go until he was done. And 
And Harry was trying to figure out why that happened. How was he able to overcome Quirrell in that moment? And so he sits down and has a conversation with Dumbledore. And, and this was the exchange. Harry's sitting down with, his, with Professor Dumbledore and asks, why couldn't Quirrell touch me? And then Dumbledore responded this way, your mother died to save you. And if there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign. To have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. The reason we can resist the devil is because we've been loved deeply. It's because we've been marked out by the love of Christ. So when the enemy comes against us, his purposes cannot prevail over us because we have been marked out by love. And so our enemy is doomed because he was defeated in the past. He can be resisted in the present. And lastly, he will be, he will be destroyed in the future. He will be destroyed in the future. And this is the good news of the gospel. I'm sometimes asked about hell and, and I'm asked, do you really believe in hell? Do you believe in a literal hell? And my answer to that question, and it is a difficult question, but my answer to the question is, yes, I believe in a literal hell because I believe in a literal devil. I believe in a literal, in literal demons. But on the flip side of that, I believe in a literal heaven. And I believe in a literal God. And I believe in a literal Savior. And I believe in a literal Holy Spirit. And I remember that the Scriptures tell me that hell was created first and foremost to destroy the devil. And there is coming a day where the devil and all of his demonic minions will be cast down and destroyed forever and ever and ever. That day is coming. One of our kids in our church has been doing what all of our kids in our city right now, and that is they are virtual learning, uh, hanging out online with their teachers. And it's a, it's a, tough, it's a tough time, but but they're pressing on and they're enduring. And I was told about a conversation, an exchange that they had where the teacher was teaching the kids about past, present, and future. And she was explaining or trying to explain to the kids what past, present, and future means. And so the teacher was going around the virtual classroom asking individual students, can you tell me something that happened in the past? And so she asked one student that, and the student responded by saying something in the past. And then she moved on to the next student and said, can you tell me something that's happening right now in the present? And so the student responded. And, and then the teacher got to a kid who's a part of our church and asked that kid, what's going to happen in the future? And the kid looked at his teacher. She said, he said, in the future, God is going to raise his people up and he's going to cast the devil down. There's coming a day when God raises his people up and he casts the devil down. The devil will be destroyed. And as we live by faith, as we exercise faith, understand that faith is, is ushering the future into the present. It's living now in light of what is to come. And so the reason why you can live, you and I can live without fear and we can live without being frustrated by the devil and his demonic activity. The reason why we can pursue a life that flourishes even now is because our faith knows what's coming. 
And so we want to live our future into the present. Live with our heads held high, remembering there's coming a day when God's going to lift his people up and he's going to cast the devil down. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to live in light of that reality? Help us to stand firm in our faith, to resist the devil. God, we thank you that he has been defeated. We thank you that he can be resisted. We thank you that he will be destroyed. And I pray, Father, that you would energize our faith in light of that reality so we would live with confidence, that we would live with clarity, that we would live with humility. For we know that his defeat will not come at our hands necessarily, but his destruction will come at yours. And so we look forward to the day when you lift your people up, when you restore us, when you confirm us, when you strengthen us. We look forward to that day, knowing that in that day, you will cast the devil down. We ask and pray for this now, for your grace to abound as we meditate upon these and live in light of these realities. In Jesus' name, amen.